the short summary. I'm going to have to shorten these summaries with each and every passing week. Otherwise, a few weeks from now, the entire sermon is just going to be a summary. So we've got to kind of pare this thing back uh, as much as we can. The book of Esther begins with a party in the palace of the great king Ahasuerus, one of the main characters of this book of the Bible. Uh, that's the biblical name for Xerxes. Xerxes was essentially the king of the known world at his time, having inherited the Persian Empire from his father at the young age of 32. As the curtain opens, we see the king uh, gathering thousands of his officials and servants for a, a six-month-long bash, essentially, commanding their loyalty through an open bar and a harem of women. And then he follows that party with an after-party because uh, apparently a six-month display of the king's glory and greatness isn't quite enough. In fact, much of chapter 1 is the author of the book of Esther showing us just how impressive the king truly is. Everything belongs to the king. Everything exists for the king. All seems to be in order in the palace of the great King Xerxes, but midway through chapter 1, the jukebox stops. As the king calls for his queen, Queen Vashti, to parade around a room of less than sober men as the king's trophy wife, and the queen shockingly and courageously says no, and, and we're given a hint as to what the author of Esther is actually doing, revealing to us that the most powerful man in the known world is not ultimately the one in control of this story, which is what the author of Esther will continue to do throughout our entire study of this book, showing us that there's only one character in this story who's truly seated on the throne. The, the king deals with his embarrassment by banishing Queen Vashti from his presence forever, which sets the stage for the reality TV show that is chapter 2, as the king's men suggest an expansive, empire-wide version of The Bachelor, you might say, for the purpose of selecting a replacement for the recently banished queen. And though upwards of 400 young women are cast for the show, we're only introduced to one, a young lady by the name of Esther who manages to capture the king's heart. She's the last one standing at the final rose ceremony, as I mentioned last week, as the king chooses Esther, a Jewish orphan, to become his new queen. And it doesn't take long for us to see her influence at work as Esther's cousin Mordecai learns of an assassination plot on the king's life and passes the word to Esther, who happens to now be able to pass the word on to the king, which, by the way, that, that averting of the Persian JFK assassination is going to come back into play next week. So hang on to that. Put that in, in the back of your mind until we gather together this time next week. As we move into chapter 3, the story shifts into overdrive as we're introduced to Haman, a man filled with pride and insecurity, a man in bondage to his fragile human ego, a man who many of us can probably relate to, as we'll even see this morning. Uh, a man to whom Mordecai refuses to bend his knee, which sends Haman absolutely over the edge. And he decides that the best course of action, of course, is to kill off all of the Jewish people across the landscape of the Persian Empire, being that Mordecai is a Jew. Haman manages to secure the king's blessing and an edict is sent out across the empire calling for this pre-Hitler holocaust, you might say. It's a bloodbath that he's calling for, young and old women and children. As the curtain opens on chapter 4, the Jewish people have been given the news that they essentially have 11 months to live. And they respond as we might expect them to, with great mourning and fasting and weeping and Mordecai is no exception. He clothes himself in sackcloth and ashes, a visible sign of grief, which manages to get Esther's attention, and a dialogue ensues between the two of them, with Mordecai making Esther aware of the death sentence that hangs over the Jewish people and calling for her to beg the king's favor, to plead with the king on behalf of the Jews as a mediator on behalf of God's people. There's only one problem. There's a law 
uh, across the Persian Empire that declares, if you enter the presence of the king without being called upon, it's off with your head. Unless the king, as an act of grace, chooses to hold out his golden scepter, which means that you get to live to see another day. Esther expresses her hesitation to Mordecai, as you can probably imagine, to which he responds, you can choose not to stick your neck out for your people, but your silence will be the death of you. And oh, by the way, you are destined for this. You have no idea as to whether it's the threat of death that motivates Esther or the fact that she recognizes that she's destiny's child in this moment. No clue. What we do know is that she agrees to go to the king. Calling for this empire-wide fast among the Jewish people, she does in preparation and declaring to Mordecai, if I perish, I perish. Which is how chapter 4 ends. It's a great cliffhanger. It's It's a great way to end a Netflix episode. And so you should be ready at this point to push play to watch episode number five. Let's do it. Chapter five, verse one. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. All right, so Esther's been fasting for three days along with her maidservants and the Jewish people who are scattered throughout the empire. Now she comes before the king, and we see her exhibit some subtle wisdom here, I would argue. She dresses in her royal robe. She knows that the king is infatuated with displays of royalty and splendor. And we're told that the king responds favorably. The tension seems to come to some sort of resolution fairly quickly. The king not only welcomes Esther into his presence, he expresses a willingness to give up 1.5 million square miles of his empire to her request, which seems like the perfect moment to come right out and say it. Millions of Jews are on the chopping block, honey, and these are my people that we're talking about. We see this, quote-unquote, even to the half of my kingdom language elsewhere in Scripture. In Mark chapter 6, there's a woman named Herodias who has a grudge against John the Baptist. John's been calling out her sin, and she's uh, not very fond of that. And so at King Herod's birthday party, she sends her daughter to dance for the king, and the king and, and his guests are pleased with her dancing. And the king says, quote, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And per her mother's wishes, she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And we're told that the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. All right, that's a terrible Mother's Day gift, by the way. Just going into next Sunday, just like, you know, don't, don't do that. In Esther chapter 5, the point of me taking you into the gospel accounts is to say this. This is Esther's moment. This is it. It appears as though she has the perfect opportunity to get exactly what she wants, just like Herodias as she called for the head of John the Baptist, to say, I don't want half of the kingdom, baby. You can keep that. Just deliver the Jewish people. Let's not do this pre-Hitler Holocaust thing that's been set up on the calendar to take place. 
verse 4. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Okay, at this point, what Esther does seems to make at least a little bit of sense, right? Maybe, maybe she wants to loosen the king up um, with, with a few drinks before making her request. Maybe once the, the booze is free-flowing and so they crack open a few bottles of Pinot Gris and, and the king asks again, what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And, and, and here we go, verse 7. Then Esther said, my wish and my request is that you deliver the Jews from certain annihilation. That's not what verse 7 says, is it? Verse 7, then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Everybody just, just heard the jukebox stop, right? Like, what is this woman doing in this moment? This is her moment. This is her chance to rescue the Jewish people. It's time to strike while the iron's hot, you might say. But instead, she invites the king and Haman to a second fancy dinner party. It's what we would all do, right? Why? What is she doing in this moment? I wish I could tell you that scholars all agree to the answer to that question, but they don't. I can, I can certainly give you some speculative Ideas from a literary standpoint, it certainly reveals God to be all the more impressive, as we'll see. His timing and turning the tables on Haman all the more perfect. We'll get into that next week. Even from a simple human standpoint, you think about the challenges that Esther is up against. For one, she's seeking to have a law repealed in a land of irrevocable law, and it's an order that was put into action under the authority of the king's very own signet ring. And then there's the money issue tied into the plan of mass genocide is this payout of 10,000 talents of silver that are going to go directly into the king's storehouses. And then on top of all that, there's the issue of Esther's concealed identity. She's going to have to out herself. She's going to have to declare to the king that she's been deceiving him for years as his spouse in regard to her Jewish identity. This is not an easy needle to thread. Perhaps it's intentional that we're not explicitly told why Esther plots this thing out the way she does. Have you, have you, if you've been around since week one of this series, have you not at some point found yourself acting as the narrator because this book of the Bible fails to provide us with one? Determining the motives behind the actions of the characters trying to determine the why behind the decisions they make, the thoughts they have, the things they say. And here again, we find another opportunity for us to narrate if we choose to do so. But I don't think we should do that. I think it's intentional that we're not explicitly told why Esther plots this thing out the way she does. If, if we were told that God parted the clouds and, and said to Esther, here's what I want you to do, Esther. I want you to throw a dinner party for the king, and at that dinner party, great idea. I want you to invite the king and Haman to a second dinner party. 
And between those two dinner parties, I'm going to do some things on my end that's going to blow your mind and show you just how big of a God I actually am as I turn the tables and flip this thing upside down on its head. If that's how the story went, we'd all walk away going, I wish God would part the clouds and talk to me like that. Especially in those moments in which it's less than clear what the best path forward actually is. Like most of us, Esther is seeking to do the best with what she has She's seeking to walk in wisdom in a world in which God doesn't miraculously part the clouds every time we face a decision. Would it be nice if God led us like he led his people in the wilderness, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night? Duh! Like Who wouldn't sign up for that, right? I've said this before. This church would blow up overnight if we left this place carried by pillars of cloud as we walked away on Sunday afternoons. There would be, you'd never pull into Chick-fil-A on a Sunday going, no, closed, I did it again. Like You would never make a foolish decision because God would always guide you perfectly. You'd never mess up. Could God appear in a pillar of cloud and fire to direct your every step? Of course, he could do that. He's God. Is that normatively the way he directs the steps of his people today? Not so much. If we wait for the pillar of cloud and fire, we might be waiting our lives away. Which, by the way, there are a lot of people doing that these days. Kevin DeYoung in his book, Just Do Something, which is a great book to read if you're a person who finds themselves paralyzed with decision-making in life. He says this. He says, Our search for the will of God has become an accomplice in the postponement of growing up a convenient out for the young or old Christian floating through life without direction or purpose. Too many of us have passed off our instability, inconsistency, and endless self-exploration as, quote, looking for God's will, as if not making up our minds and meandering through life were marks of spiritual sensitivity. Perhaps, maybe, Maybe God's way of creating in us greater dependence upon him is by not parting the clouds. God doesn't part the clouds for Esther, and so she has to do the best with what she has to work with, which makes it all the more encouraging, does it not, that God is in control? Going back to a couple of weeks ago, that he's able to form beautiful pictures out of our smudged and stained efforts. We're not told that Esther handles the situation perfectly. We don't know. But we are told, as we'll see next week, that God is on the move, as we've talked about since week one of this series. He's in perfect sequence to bring about his redemptive purposes. Esther determines that the best approach from her vantage point, in the words of one scholar, is to reel the king in like a trophy fish, to carefully bring him into the boat so he doesn't get off the hook. In in the language of verse 8, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request... That in in meekness, she's making it seem as though the king is directing these unfolding events himself. Even the the language at the end of verse 8, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. She uses the kind of subtle language that makes it sound like she's doing the king a favor here. Setting the stage for it to become all the more difficult for the king to say no to her request. At this point in the story, you might expect verse 9 to say, and so the next day at the second dinner party... But again, that's not what happens either, is it? Verse 9 says, And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Here we go again. Nevertheless, 
Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Verse 12, Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Anyone ever seen the episode of Friends where Joey sits in Chandler's chair? And Chandler, in an effort to annoy Joey so that he will get up out of that chair, gets right in Joey's face and does this thing where he's like, not touching, can't get mad, not touching, can't get mad. That, that is Mordecai in Haman's life. He's like this gnat that just won't stop bothering this man who's in bondage to his fragile human ego. Haman has what he um, perceives to be in this moment the, the respect and the approval of the king and queen of the greatest empire in the known world at its time, which fills him with great joy. And yet the reality of the human heart is there's always someone else's respect and approval to be obtained. Is there not? I don't know about you, I can relate to Haman a lot here. He can't seem to obtain the respect and approval of, of Mordecai, and it, it infuriates him. His happiness evaporates in an instant. It's fleeting. You ever been there? I know I have. Things are going well. I'm, I'm elated, and then something happens, and all of a sudden, I'm down in the pit of despair so quickly. The idolatrous heart always longs for what it's lacking. And it leaves us on a roller coaster ride of sorts. Mordecai exposes Haman's idol of approval. To, to be clear, the, the Bible teaches that idolatry is not some rare sin among primitive people. It doesn't have to be shaped in the form of a golden statue to be an idol. We all entrust our hearts to people and things. Paul says it really well in Romans chapter 1 where he talks about the the exchanging of the truth about God for a lie and the worshiping and serving of the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That Paul says we were created to worship. We can't, we can't help ourselves. God designed us to worship him. And what that means is that we will either worship uncreated God or we will worship some created person or thing. It's what the human heart does. We cannot eliminate God, you might say, without creating God's substitutes or additives. Philip Ryken says it this way. He says, The world is full of God substitutes and God additives, things that take the place of God in daily life. The reason we have trouble recognizing our own private idolatries is not because we don't have any false gods anymore, but because we have so many. Or as John Calvin once famously said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Always cranking them out. I mentioned this with the pre-service prayer team, I said, we could just preach through Esther chapter 5 every week and then run to the foot of the cross because each week we're probably bringing something new to the table as God works to progressively conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. But 
until we are the glorified versions of ourselves, this is a battle that we will face as our heart, as Calvin says, constantly seeks to crank out the next idol, the next thing that, that it will make much of, the next thing that will compete with our affections, uh, with God for our affections. Those things that, that will fight to become more fundamental to our happiness, identity, and purpose than God. For Haman, it's the, it's the idol of approval that's twisted itself around his heart. And thus he, he lives on this swinging pendulum of pride and despair. It's a ride that he can't seem to get off of, right? Filled with pride and, and joy as he walks away from a dinner party feeling like he's truly a somebody, having won the respect and the approval of the most important pe- people in his mind in all of the kingdom. Filled with anger and wrath as he realizes that there's still someone's respect and approval that he doesn't have. And then back to pride and joy as he, this is crazy, as he gathers his wife and friends for a public reading of his resume. And yet it's not crazy because we've all done it, right? And then back to anger and wrath as his mind focuses yet again on Mordecai, this man whom he can't get out of his brain. Which, by the way, as a side note, man's propensity is to violently defend his or her idols. As a fellow pastor once said, as we idolize, we cannot help but demonize. We, we war against the people and things that threaten our idols. We can't help ourselves. We see it in the book of Acts as Paul exposes not the idols that he sees in various cities and riots break out. Idols are threatened and violence ensues. And, and it's not always physical violence. Sometimes it's a warring of the heart. Right? Many of us have been there. We, we have this thing, this, oftentimes this good thing that we've made an ultimate thing in our lives and it gets stripped from us and all of a sudden we're proverbially waving our fists in the face of the Almighty. How dare you? You owe me, God, as if we could put God in our debt through our moralistic efforts. And what that is, is that's, that's violence. That's existential violence toward the God who has made us and redeemed us. When Haman's idol is fed, He's overjoyed. When his idol is threatened, he becomes violent. That that 75-foot gallows that Haman determines to be built, the height of those gallows is, is indicative of Haman's pride, you could say. It's an indication that Haman wants his victory over Mordecai on full display for everyone in the empire to see. Little does he know that he's preparing the gallows from which he himself will hang. We'll get there next week. Re- episode 6 is going to be awesome, by the way. Pride always comes before the fall. Ian Dugid says this in his commentary. Really sad. He says, Even superficial thought should have shown that this solution would never deal with Haman's underlying problems. Indeed, the very size of the gallows would have unintentionally elevated Mordecai to a position of significance. His very death would have drawn all eyes to him and away from Haman in a way that a smaller gallows would not have done. Inevitably, that is what happens when we seek to deal with our idolatries by feeding them rather than by starving them. We end up emptier than ever, in even greater bondage than before, and it is only a matter of time before something else reignites our negative emotions. That's what idols do. They, they leave us emptier and emptier over the course of time. They draw us into deeper and deeper bondage, and oftentimes we don't even see it happening. Coming back to Dugid's commentary, listen to the contrast of what he says could have been for Haman. He says, once he had recognized his idolatry, Haman might have been shown how the reign of his idol was being challenged by the day's events. 
He could have been directed to repent of that idolatry by seeing how the gospel answered his need for true significance, the kind of value in life that is not challenged by what people think of us. He could have been introduced to the God who loves his people unconditionally in spite of their sin. He could have been shown that he needed to abandon seeing the world revolving around him and his successes and instead see a world revolving around God in which his achievements had value as a means of bringing God the glory that he deserved. That the gospel offers us something better than the the empty, enslaving pursuit of idols. And so I think a critical question, a question that I find myself oftentimes coming back to is, why do we do it? Why do we constantly take the good things in our lives and treat them as ultimate things, as God things? I think if we're honest, we have to say we, we all have a little bit of Haman in us to some degree. If, if we were to have an honest moment just for a second, how would you answer the question, what are those things that compete with God for your affections? What are those things that can become more fundamental to your happiness, identity, and purpose than God? Here's some helpful questions to ask in identifying idols in our lives. Let's do this as, an, as, as a heart exercise this morning. Question one, what is my greatest nightmare? What do I worry about most? And I would encourage you to write these things down as, you're, as you see these questions on the screen. What, what are your responses? And then see if you see some themes there. What do you worry about most? What keeps you awake at night? What wakes you up at 1.30 in the morning that then keeps you from falling back asleep until 4.30 in the morning? What are those things? What, what if I failed at or lost it would cause me to feel as though I don't want to live anymore? What keeps me going? What is it that, that drives you? What would you, aside from God, what would you consider to be fuel in your tank, you might say, that spurs you on? What do I rely upon or comfort myself with when things go bad or get difficult? What do you, what do you turn to when you find yourself in the pit of despair? to lift you out of it when it's not God. Next question. What do I think most easily about? What does my mind go to when I am free? When we're not immediately hitting play on the next Netflix episode or immediately grabbing our electronic device to scroll through the next piece of social media footage, what, what, when you have that time and margin and space and you're you have the opportunity to think on whatever it may be that you think on. Where does your mind naturally go? Next question. What prayer, if unanswered, would make me seriously think about turning away from God? I can't tell you how many students in former years of youth ministry I saw declare a love for Jesus only to then, a couple years later, say, God didn't respond favorably in this way that I wanted him to, and thus I'm not interested in God or the church. As if Jesus is a a genie in a bottle, a a stepping stone to something greater than Jesus in our lives. Next question, what makes me feel the most self-worth? Of what am I most proud? What in in your life, if, if you could do this and it not be socially awkward, if we could never graduate from putting things on the refrigerator that were impressive about us, as adults, what, what would you put on the fridge for everyone to see? Of what are you most proud? Last question. What do I really want and expect out of life? What would really make me happy? And listen, again, these are oftentimes not evil things. 
Most of us on this list are not going cocaine and prostitution. That's my, that's my recurring theme that I'm seeing here, right? For most of us, it's career, it's children, it's money, it's, it's things that are good things that we take, and again, we elevate them to God's status in our lives. And we even, we even take the fact that they're good things and use that to defend them up on their pedestal. As you consider these questions, what are some common themes? What are... What tends to be too important? What things? What, what people? If those questions aren't a helpful diagnostic, another, you can just throw those out and you can go at another way and just consider your strongest emotions. Our strongest emotions are like a check engine light revealing what's going on deep down in our hearts. Trace that emotion and follow it down to its motivation, its source at a heart level and you might get an answer to the question. Which brings me to the gospel. Aren't you, when you read Esther chapter five, are you thankful for Jesus? Man, I know I am. Coming back to to Esther herself and the the challenges of making decisions that are honorable to the Lord. It's because of Jesus that we have the hope of something better than a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Like when we walk out, people should be amazed. As they watch us, yes, fumbling our way through this thing called life, but depending upon the Spirit and trusting the Spirit's leading. And God will take even our smudged and stained efforts and beautifully orchestrate His plan of redemption in and through us. And people will look in on that, and they will be amazed by what they see. Not because we're impressive, but because we depend upon an impressive God to lead us. Without Jesus, there is no indwelling Holy Spirit guide us. Not only that, it's Jesus who frees us from living like Haman. The gospel speaks to Esther's situation and Haman's situation in this chapter. The God of the Bible is the king who, like Xerxes, holds the, the power of life and death. Apart from Jesus, we would all die in his presence, but the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus bore our death, and three days later, he conquered it. So that for those who come to him with nothing more than their sin and the empty hands of faith, trusting in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, not only is there no perishing in the presence of the king, but a seat at his banqueting table. You don't have to live like Haman, bouncing back and forth from the joy of knowing and being known by the king to the despair that comes in seeing that one thing that's always missing. And listen, I'm preaching this to my own heart this morning. I need to hear this. We find ourselves freed by the gospel from declaring, I know I'm a child of God, but I'm worth nothing if I don't have blank. Fill that in. Jesus frees us from that. He offers us a better seat at the table of a better king who's the king of a better kingdom, as we sang about just a few moments ago. And the more that we soak in who we are and what we've been given in Jesus Christ, the more glad of heart we will truly find ourselves and the more we will find ourselves freed from the empty pursuit of idols. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship together one way through singing. We're gonna sing praises to this Jesus who has made a way for us to experience the the hope of his indwelling Holy Spirit and this Jesus who has made a way for us to be freed from running to broken cisterns, broken wells that are empty, filled with death rather than life. We're gonna sing to this Jesus. Uh, There will also be people in the back of the room to pray with and for you if you wanna take advantage of that. If you come in this morning and you go, man, I am despairing. Like I don't see God 
present in my life at all right now, or I'm apathetic. When I wake up to each and every day uh, presently in my life, I, I just struggle to, to find any reason to roll out of bed and to engage the life that is before me. Whatever you bring to the table this morning, maybe it's the idolatrous heart of Haman. Maybe it's the struggle to see God's guiding hand in your life. There are people who would love to pray with and for you in the midst of that in the back of this auditorium in just a few moments. And then lastly, we're going to worship through the receiving of communion. Um, We take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. As you prepare to come receive of those elements this morning, just just slow down and take the time to, to just be grateful. To be grateful that God has made a way for us to be reconciled to himself. And he's so near that he indwells us by his very spirit, guiding us and leading us. And he longs to free us from even the present tense idolatries of our heart. And he will do that for you this morning as you run yet again to the foot of the cross.